All right. Well, sure appreciate you all coming. I want to really say thank you uh, for those who came Thursday as well. And I know you guys are investing uh, a lot of time to, to um, grow in God's Word and understand God's Word and, and do uh, fellowship with each other. What a great uh, joy it is to, to be at North Avenue and, and especially with you also. Very humbling to us that you would invest this um, time. Mark, would you pray? And, uh, and we're going to start in Colossians um, 1, um, starting in verse 15, as Paul, I guess, letter to the Colossians is really his masterpiece of Christ. And uh, that's what we're dealing with today, the, the Lord Jesus. So not a better topic for sure. And uh, Mark, if you'd pray for us. And if you have the Grudem book, it is chapter 14, page 229, where we are starting today. All right, let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, thank you for uh, this church. Thank you for just the encouragement that they have been to, to me, to us, to each other. Uh, thank you for the work that you're doing in each uh, life, uh, helping us to grow in, our, in both our knowledge of you and also our love for you, and growing also in our knowledge and experience of your love for us through Christ. And so I pray now as we study the person of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, that you would help us to have clarity of thought, but also that it would uh, kindle affection in our heart for who Jesus is and what Jesus has done and what He continues to do for His bride, the church. And so I pray that you would right now allow us to worship as we study uh, your Son, the Lord Jesus, and we pray this in His name. Amen. 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 Uh, Papa, it says that we may summarize the biblical teaching about the person of Christ as follows. Jesus Christ was fully God and fully man in one person and will be so forever. So uh, we're glad you're on board to explain that to us because that is yes, not the, the easiest concept, but it is a great one uh, to think through. And so, Papa, if you would start for us in uh, Colossians 1, 15 to um, how about 23? Well, let's stop at 20. All right, I'll stop at 20. But I want to I wanna make this point, too, before I read. I, was, I remember poor Josh Krause a few years ago. It was uh, probably five years ago, anyway. We were at uh, Chick-fil-A doing Hebrews, one, one, just one through four. And after about two months, he's, he, <laughs> we were still on Hebrews one, one, <laughs> one through four. And, and so we could do the same thing with this with this passage, because this really is a, a good Pauline summary of, of our Lord. Um, Colossians uh, 1, 15 through 20, the word of the Lord. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Mark, can you help us to understand that? Thank you, Papa. Verse 17. And it's always fascinating. I don't want to get bogged down by just a, kind of one thing here. But 
he is before all things. That seems to be, I can grasp that. But in him, all things hold together. What a great statement. Can you help us to understand what that really means? Yeah, if you can hold your spot here, if you can turn to the right a few books to Hebrews chapter 1, the very place that Fred was just mentioning. So hold your spot there in, in Colossians and flip over to Hebrews chapter 1, and I'm, gonna, I'm just going to read a kind of a parallel paragraph, as you were saying, Fred, and let's look at this pretty astonishing description of Jesus as well. Hebrews 1, verses 1 through 4. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name He has inherited is more excellent than theirs, and, he, and the author goes on. But you, you see here a similar idea. It says here that in the middle of verse 3, He upholds the universe by the word of His power. So, similar, in Him all things hold together, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. So, I mean, physically, He holds this world physically together. The time and space universe exists and continues to exist because Jesus tells it to every moment. He is sovereignly controlling and continuing this world. In Him we live and move and have our being, and He Himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. So, every heartbeat of every human being, every breath of air into our lungs, Every moment of our life, we are being literally sustained, held together by the Word of Christ. The physical world continues because of Him, and the spiritual world. Thrones, dominions, authorities, principalities, powers, whether angelic or demonic, you know, whether the angels who did not fall or the angels who did fall, all of that was created by Jesus and is sustained by Jesus. He is supreme over all those things. He is ruling over those, all those things. So, Jesus is not to be compared with a mere human being. He is far above because He is also God. He is not to be compared to an angel, even Satan, a very powerful fallen angel. He is not to be compared to those because He is the creator of all and sustainer of all. And so, He, he is above and He is in control, and He is, uh, as it says here, upholding the universe, all things, by the word of His power. Yeah, I'm not much of a scientist, but I read that scientists are still baffled. What holds everything together? You know, it doesn't seem like, I guess, it's not, it's not explainable with science to know how this all holds together. Seems like it should all fall apart, but, but the Lord is. We know the answer. The Lord Jesus is. He's holding it all together physically, and if He doesn't, he let go for one second, I guess, obviously, uh, uh, things are over. Papa, any thoughts on that? Well, we were, I, it's, it's funny that you mentioned up, bring this up like this, because we were sitting out in front of Westminster just a few days ago, I think the earlier part of this week, perhaps, or maybe last week, I can't remember. And we were talking about that very thing, that every, every leaf on the trees that were in front of us, the, the molecules, the atoms, the electrons that were holding uh, these chairs, the chairs that you're sitting in together, uh, all of this energy, all these fields, all the, the laws of the universe, um, the gravity, for example, uh, the planets, their orbits, all that's sustained by our Lord Jesus Christ. And just to give a word of sort of application for believers, why this is incredibly good news, this means that this is not the God of deism. 
who sort of winds the world up like a clock and steps away like the watchmaker and just sort of lets the world go beyond his surveillance or beyond his care or intervention. This is a God who is intimately involved in all of our lives. So, of course, He knows our name. He knows everything about us. He knows the good and the bad. He has forgiven us. He is graciously at work within us. We can take to Him our struggles because He's right there. He's controlling. He's, he's right there in our struggle. He knows intimately what it is. We can go to Him with small things. We can go to Him with big things. We can go to Him with big trials. We can go to Him with small, little, daily, mundane issues, and we can present them before the Lord. We can cast our cares before Him, assured of the fact that He cares for us because He demonstrated it with His death on the cross. So, th- this, this goes as high as you can go and as big as you can go. It also goes as small as you can go and as intimate as you can go. There, there isn't, there, there is, you know, the, the scale is, is just endless. Jesus is everywhere present, and no matter what is going on, He, he is there and he is, he is aware. Yeah. And what a great, what great news that is. Uh, Grudem starts with the humanity of Christ and, and really breaks it to two things, uh, the humanity and the deity, um, and start with the humanity. Why is the virgin birth important? Because sometimes that's controversial. Yeah, the, the virgin birth is important because it's not just sort of a random miracle just to prove, hey, I'm God, I can do this like a virgin birth, I can do that, a virgin conception, literally. The, the significance of the virgin conception and birth is if Jesus was born as the, you know, as a result of normal procreation between a husband and a wife or a man and a woman, then He would be born in the line of Adam. He would be born with the imputed guilt of Adam's sin and with the sinful fallen nature of Adam's sinfulness all over Him. So, Jesus would be born with the mark of Adam's sin and with the sin nature of Adam. And Jesus could not, in that sense, be a perfect substitute. Mm-hmm. So, He had to be born truly human, so He's from, from Eve, but He is also from the Holy Spirit. And so, in that sense, Jesus is able to bypass the fallenness of Adam's race, which we all inherit uh, through our physical descent. Jesus did not have that. He had no fallen sinful nature, no imputation of Adam's guilt. This allowed Him to be, uh, in some ways, similar to how Adam and Eve were in the garden, although, of course, Jesus was divine and they were not, but He is, in some sense, similar. He's born without uh, sin, and He is able to be tested and tempted at all points like as we are, yet never fail so that he could become a substitute for us. Good, Papa. Salvation comes from the Lord. We learn from um, Galatians. God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. So not only did he come without the imputed sin, he came to save us from our sins. and Mark's already mentioned the inherited sin that we have through Adam. What about Mary? There are some that teach that, well, what about Mary? Uh, the Catholic Church actually um, uh, in the 19th century decreed that Mary was not only born without sin, she was assumed into heaven without sin, which was a papal decree in the 19th century. So they take care of Mary in that. Yeah, just, just I, it's probably, not, I mean, th- that may not be something that you struggle with. It may be something a relative struggles with if they, if they have more of a Catholic background. But the idea that Mary was herself conceived without sin, the immaculate conception in Catholicism is not referring to Jesus' conception. It's referring to Mary's conception in the womb of her mother, which the Catholic Church has provided her name, St. Anne. The Bible never tells us that's her name. We actually don't know what her name is, but the Catholic Church declares through tradition that her, Mary's mother's name was Anne, and she, although she was fallen, she was able to immaculately conceive Mary without sin, so that Mary was born without sin and lived her whole life without sin. And just a quick response, and I, I even know the Catholic counter-response to this, but it doesn't, frankly, 
work. But in, in Luke, I won't turn there right now, but when, Jesus, when Mary first conceives, you know, she sings that Mary's, they call it the Magnificat. The Magnificat. Yeah, her, her, her famous song when, she's, when she conceives as a young girl, teenage girl, no doubt. And she says, my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Who needs a Savior? A sinner needs a Savior. So Mary is clearly confessing her sinfulness, obviously, in that verse. And the Catholic Church says, no, 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 no. Really, she's saying that God saved her from sin by her being immaculately conceived in St. Anne's womb. I said, where is that in the text? That is not in the Bible at all. You're just putting that in your Bible. That's called eisegesis, reading something into the text that's not there, rather than exegesis, which is bringing out of the text what's actually there. She uses the word, God, my Savior. Clearly, she's, she's seeing herself like we see ourselves as sinful. Mary was a virtuous woman, but she, she was clearly sinful like the rest of humanity, which is an important point in this whole discussion. Yeah, no, that's, that's big. Go ahead, Papa. Well, Jesus is, he, he was born as a human baby, uh, fully God, fully man, uh, but his humanity, he had, he had a human body. He was born at, in, in a manger, uh, as described in Luke, uh, and he, dis, he displayed human uh, tendencies. Mm. Uh, he thirsted, he was hungry, he was tired, uh, uh, he increased, but he increased in wisdom and stature in favor with God and man. We learn when, when he's left behind by his parents and he goes to the temple and, and uh, his parents uh, bring him back home, he says he submitted to them and grew in wisdom and stature in favor with God and man. So just like any of the rest of us would be in perfect obedience to his parents, earthly parents. Yeah, so when you think about his, um, the way Gruden put it here, weaknesses and limitations, um, how do you explain that in that he was 100% truly God and truly man, both, but um, those limitations or those weaknesses as a man, how do you kind of think through that or explain that? Now, this is very hard, and I always, I think a lot of people say this, when you're dealing with the doctrine of the Trinity, or particularly with the doctrine of Christ like we are right now, you are always about one millimeter away from an actual heresy. Yeah. Uh, it, just, it just is. And, and I, I think Christians all the time accidentally state heresies about Jesus and about the Trinity. You know, it's like he's like a three-leaf clover, and it's like, well, no, that's partialism or, you know, modalism or whatever. I mean, ice, you know, solid, liquid, and gas, you know, that's actually the, that's a heresy of modalism. Like, you, you, there is no illustration of the Trinity in our world because God is beyond and transcendent. And we, shouldn't we expect that, that mm -hmm. the Creator transcends our ability to fully comprehend Him? Well, Jesus, okay, there's just some big words here. I don't really know what to do with these, but so Jesus is, the church has kind of decreed, has said, and I think this is good and accurate. It's called the hypostatic union. And the idea of this is that you have within Jesus, you have two natures that exist together. And I will just tell you, R.C. Sproul is wonderful on this topic. If you, if you go on YouTube, I was watching it this week. If you go on YouTube and you look up his stuff on the Trinity, I mean, Sproul, you know, he's got those like 23-minute little videos with the chalkboard. And he gets chalk all over his hands and his suit top and everything. He's just like, he just chalks everywhere. And he'll put like your classic, you know, the crucial Greek terms or maybe a Latin word on the board. And he'll explain it with perfect clarity as Sproul has that ability. And uh, I wish I had whatever he has about his knowledge of the Trinity. But just some things that, that, you'll, that you'll talk about here is Jesus, a, a, a belief that people oftentimes have that they shouldn't have, and it's kind of unavoidable. I mean, it is avoidable, but it can feel unavoidable in people's minds, is we tend to sort of think that Jesus was sort of a mixture of, you know, 
partly human qualities and partly divine qualities. They sort of meet in the middle and they sort of mix together in some way. So he was semi-human and semi-divine, this sort of strange mixture. And clearly that's not accurate, but we need to be careful in how we talk about these things. I know this is at the end of the chapter, but just he mentions a couple of, of, of the heresies. I thought this might be a good moment just to mention yeah. a few of these that the early church dealt with at the Council of Nicaea and the Council of Chalcedon in the 300s and 400s AD. And, and before we even read this, every century, every era of the church has its own heresies to deal with. And uh, I don't know if I said this in here, but I've said this to a few of you, that in the early centuries, the big debate was, who is Jesus? And that was not an easy one to completely get agreement on. I mean, who is Jesus? What is the Trinity? That, that was a massive debate for centuries in the early church. And then you fast forward to the Reformation period, and it's what? It's justification by faith. How are we made right with God? Is it by our works plus faith or just by faith in Christ's works? What is it? And, and justification by faith alone was that big moment with Martin Luther and the Reformers. And then, you know, today, our big confusion is, is gender. I really wish I lived in a different century. <laughs> gender and sexuality became the issue of today. So we, we've got, all, again, this, on Thursday nights, we'll be addressing some of these issues. But, you know, I really kind of wish we had a different fight on our hands than the one that we do. But we have, that's kind of the issue of our day today is, is the sexuality, gender, uh, what, what uh, anthropology, who, who are human beings, what are they? That's our big issue today. But that doesn't mean we leave these issues behind. Every generation must reckon with the, the Trinity and with who the person of Christ is. So... And Fred, help me if I get something wrong here, because I'm not as good on this as I would like to be. But sure. Arianism is the idea that Jesus was a created being. And this is what all cults basically believe, whether it's Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormons. Jesus is a created being that became divine in some sense. That is clearly not true. Jesus is eternal, just as the Father and the Spirit. Another one is Apollinarianism, which is that Jesus is less than fully human, some sort of mixture of divine and human. Then you have here, this is page 242, Nestorianism. Nestorianism is the idea that there are two persons in Christ. Mm -hmm. You have the human Christ and you have the divine Christ, and these are two different persons within Christ. That is clearly not what the Bible is teaching. Uh, we, we're, what we believe is, and what the church has historically believed, you're dealing with Jesus is one person with two natures. Okay, one person, Jesus, and he has two distinct natures. His his divinity, his true, truly godness, and he took on humanity in the incarnation. He is truly, genuinely human without sin, but he's genuinely human. And uh, the, the Council of Chalcedon dealt with this heresy. Now, I'm, I'm going to put myself to sleep on some of these things, but two, because these words are so you it's hard to hold 244 on 244 there? Two, I was just starting at 243 real quick. So 243, um, I don't even know how to pronounce the word monophysitism or something like that. How, do you know how to say that, Fred? Mon uh, Eutychianism is a better way to say yes, it. That's another Named form. after the guy who Adler, founded Eutychus. this thing. Yes. And th this idea here is uh, the idea that Jesus is only one nature. So that J Jesus is just one nature. And again, that's some kind of mixture uh, between divine and human. And, and producing a, a separate nature. Yes. All, all, yes. All Which all is really neither divine nor right. human at the end of the day. And then if you look at Chalcedon at the bottom of page 243, this is in the year AD 451, they dealt with a lot of these things. And let me just, we don't often take the time to read these things. Let me just read the, the statement from the Council of Chalcedon, top of page 244. We then, following the Holy Fathers, all with one consent, teach men to confess one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, the same perfect in Godhead and also perfect in manhood, truly God and truly man. Uh, 
Uh, let me just pause. I'm sorry. Let me pause in the middle of that. And, and this is where R.C. Sproul would sometimes, this could sound like a quibbling point, but he, he actually preferred truly God and truly man as the actual wording of this. And he said, of a reasonable, or that is rational, rational soul and body, consubstantial or coessential with the Father according to the Godhead, and consubstantial with, the, with us according to manhood, in all things like unto us without sin, begotten before all ages of the Father according to the Godhead, and in these latter days for us and for our salvation, born of the Virgin Mary, the mother of God, which is a controversial phrase, according to the manhood, one and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, to be acknowledged in two natures, inconfusedly, unchangeably, indivisibly, inseparably, that is crucial to this declaration, the distinction of natures being by no means taken away by the union, but rather the property of each nature being preserved and concurring in one person and one subsistence, not parted or divided into two persons, but one and the same Son and only begotten God, the Word, the Lord Jesus Christ, as the prophets from the beginning have declared concerning Him, and the Lord Jesus Christ Himself has taught us and the creed of the Holy Fathers has been handed down to us. So that, that step, statement there about two natures, in, uh, not confused, not changeable, not divisible, not separable, that, that's kind of the core of what they're, what they're saying there. And they're denying a bunch of heresies as they make those statements. Yeah, Papa, anything to add there? I do want to jump back real just for a second to page 113 uh, on Arianism. There's two, two terms uh, I want to define because I think it'll help. Because Arianism was really one of the longest uh, existing heresies a uh, couple hundred, two or three hundred years, and there's some that still uh, adopt or, uh, uh, Arianism, some faiths, um, is the word uh, monogenous. Uh, the, the church fathers, when they were uh, developing the creed to define who Christ was, they, the Greek word was monogenous, and they interpreted it begotten. Well, begotten means to beget, like a parent begets a child, our father begets a, a child. It's only in the 20th century with some linguistic work that they realize that, that that term actually means one of a kind or unique. So if you go to your Bible today, it'll say, John 3, 16, it used to say the only begotten son, it says the son of, of the father or the, the, one and the, only. the one and only or a unique son, that, that those words are used interchangeably. So that's, that's one point I want to make because you, you, you still get the begottens in the creeds, but that really means one of a kind or unique. Yeah, the, the, the word begotten, sometimes people take to mean that Jesus had a beginning. He was begotten. But when it says begotten before all ages, it does not mean he had a beginning. Uh, and there has been still continued debate over how to translate and use that word. And Grudem's actually changed his mind on that uh, at least one, or, one time in the past. Yeah. Go ahead, Papa. Well, the other point is homoousius versus uh, homoiousius. That's on page 114. And when they wrote the creed and, and declared Arius a heretic, they decided on the same nature, which is homoousius, homo of the same nature. The other would have been of a similar nature, nature which is what Arius wanted. No, he has the exact same nature as God. Yeah, I, I don't know. Maybe the difference of one Greek letter, homoousios right. versus homoousios. Uh, yeah. Umlaut. I mean, what, not an umlaut, but a, what a, uh, uh, the, 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 what's the I in Greek called? 
Iota. Yeah, thank you. So, so the, 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 there was one letter difference. So this just shows you why things really matter, and it's good to read church history for this reason. Uh, uh, Athanasius was ready literally to give his life over a single Greek letter in that word. So he, okay, not homoousios, homoousios, not, 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 Jesus is not a similar substance to the Father. He is of the same essence as the Father. And Athanasius gave his entire life to defend that point and was literally ready to bleed and die over that point. And so, the, the, if he would have lost that battle, the church would have lost the, <laughs> the divinity of Jesus. And so, uh, people, would, people would oftentimes, you know, make fun of him and say, well, you're giving your life for a Greek letter. And he said, well, actually, I'm giving my life for Jesus being of the same essence as the Father, not of similar essence, which is to lose Christianity. And so, I, th- one Greek letter was the difference between an orthodox view of the Trinity and a heretical view of the Trinity. And, and he was ready to, to, to do everything he could to prevent that from happening. So, uh, we, we should not despise those kinds of debates. That debate was of essential uh, importance to preserving the gospel. And you touched on this, but mysterious for sure, right? We're, oh, we're probably not going to grasp any oh, like yeah. the Trinity. There's some, this is above us, what you would expect and what you would want, because he is, he's God. We, as high as the heavens are above the earth, so are his thoughts higher in our ways. His ways are, uh, or his thoughts higher in our thoughts, his ways higher in our ways. For sure in this, go ahead, Papa. Well, we're not up here because we have all the answers, because if you ask me to explain how these two natures are one nature and yet work in concert, yeah. I can't do it. Right. Inexplicable in our minds, but we believe what Scripture is saying, that's what we're trying to, Absolutely. trying to hold to. I thought it interesting maybe uh, to touch on it in 234, because it is a, um, a hard thing to understand then, well, could Jesus really be tempted um, we, we know he could be tempted. Could have he really sinned? Mark, could you help us with that? that there's uh, these uh, explicit affirmations of Scripture present us with a dilemma similar to the number of doctoral dilemmas where Scripture seems to be teaching things that are, if not directly contradictory, um, they're very difficult to understand. And in that Jesus was tempted but God can't be tempted. Right. Can yeah, and, and not all Christians will agree on this point. Even respectable Christians will disagree. So this may sound controversial, what I'm about to say. I'm giving you my, my own uh, best shot on this. I think when people say, was Jesus able to sin? My answer is yes and no, depending on what you mean. And the distinctions are very important here. So did Jesus, remember, was it last week we talked about physical ability versus moral ability? I would say this is a pretty good case of that happening. So, did Jesus have hands that could have picked up a weapon and murdered someone? Yes. Did He have eyes that could have looked with lust? Yes. Did He have feet that could have been swift to shed blood? Yes. Could He have used His mouth to curse and to be prideful and arrogant and state factual falsehoods about God? Could He have lied with His mouth? He had all the physical equipment to do everything wrong you can imagine, just like you do. So, was he physically, did he have the natural ability to sin in that sense? Well, of course he did, in the sense of that's what the temptation was. Turn these stones into bread. Did he have the power, had he so chosen, to do such a thing? I I think the answer is yes. Now, that may sound shocking, but I want to clarify quickly. Did he have the moral ability to sin? Did he? No. He had no moral ability to sin because he had no desire for sin, no love of sin, and he was, because of who he was, he was going to resist temptation to the uttermost no matter what, even if he was in the garden sweating his drops of blood. I mean, he he is going to do whatever he's got to do to resist temptation. So, if the question is, would Jesus ever sin? 
The answer is 100% sure no. It's not 50-50. It's not 99 to 1. There is a 0% chance he will sin because morally speaking, he had no desire for sin, never would have a desire for sin because of who he was in his nature. But so far as his physical body goes, uh, he was hungry and the, the, the devil presented a temptation and had he so desired, he could have done it. He had the ability to do it physically, but morally he was never going to give in because of who he was in his person. And so I, that, that may sound needlessly confusing, but I, I do think to be honest about the temptation passages, th- there was a choice to be made, but because of who he was, he was always guaranteed going to make the right choice because he was morally in love with what is righteous and good and true, and he was 100% had no love for what is false. So just let me add one piece to that. Mm-hmm. James 1 says, when we are tempted, we are lured and enticed by our own evil desire. Remember that verse, kind of this fishing metaphor? You know, you got the lure in there, and the fish sees it and is drawn to it and bites it, and it gets dragged away to sin gives birth to death at the end of the day. Uh, desire gives birth to sin. Sin gives birth to death. And Jesus was tempted, but he was not tempted exactly the same way that sometimes we are tempted. Here's an example. We are tempted in ways because you and I have a sinful nature, of temptations that spring from within, out of our own evil heart, temptations springing from within our own fallen nature, Jesus was never tempted in that sense. He never had a prideful thought coming up out of His heart that He had to push back down and resist like we do every day. A a lazy um, desire coming up out of His own heart that He had to suppress and kill like we do every day. That's not what He was dealing with. He had His temptations coming from without. It was Satan putting something in front of him from outside of him or things around him outside of him that might have suggested something. But as far as his own flesh, he had no flesh. He had no sin nature that was suggesting or prompting him to sin like we do all the time. Uh, But as far as external temptations, he had everything you could possibly imagine thrown at him. And he had actually the hardest temptations because he was facing the cross and he did not give in. Uh, And uh, his temptations were... a lot of people have talked about this in the past, but Jesus knew temptation. People will often say He didn't understand it very well because He wasn't in our shoes like we are. we got our flesh. We give in. He doesn't know what it's really like to be tempted. And I would say it's exactly the opposite. We don't know what it's really like oftentimes to be tempted because we give in sometimes. Who knows the temptation the most? The person who endures for five minutes and gives in, for an hour and gives in, for a month and gives in, a year and gives in, or the person who never gives in, who's enduring the fullness of the temptation? The person who never gives the in. The person who never gives in. So Jesus actually knows the pull of, uh, of, of that, the pull of temptation, all the way to its terminus, you know, all the way to its ending point, and he never gave in. So he actually understands that kind of temptation to its fullness in a way that sinful people don't, because we have so often in our life failed and given in. So Jesus understands temptation as well as anyone, which again, a practical point when we are being tempted in any of a thousand ways this week of whatever it may be, to be, to, to, to be snappier, to gossip, or to complain, or whatever, just know in that moment we can take that to the Lord, and He has sympathy for those who are being tempted because He Himself was tempted and tried and never fa- failed. So He has grace for us in our temptation to meet us and help us and sustain us so that when we are being tempted, He loves it when we go to Him and present that to Him. Rather than try to do it on our own and fight it on our own, go to Jesus and say, Lord, I am being tempted with this this week. I am doubting your promises here. Please help me. And the Lord, in great sympathy and love as a great high priest, will come along and, and give grace to us in that moment. Yeah, and that's Hebrews 4.14. Uh, 4, Since we have a high, great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest 
who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who is in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. And this is such a great verse. Please grace to him this week. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. He Isn't that a great verse? Oh, it is. So that's, that is precious. Hold on to that and race to him continually. He knows what it's like, whatever it is that you're going through. Papa, anything to add to that? One, one more in his humanity, um, and, and it's again in Hebrews 2, uh, 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the very same things that through death he might destroy the one who had the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it's not the angels he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers, that's us, in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest, the same thing you just got through reading, Jerry, in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. He died for our sins. He paid the wrath uh, price for our sins for because he himself has suffered when tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. Yep, good. So uh, Jesus was tempted. Jesus was fully man. Jesus was fully God. God cannot be tempted. And we know all of those things, even if we can't explain them, we know all those are true. We have 10 minutes, Mark. Just, just on that point, so just, just so that doesn't sound like a complete contradiction, Jesus, uh, remember, he has two natures in one person. So the language here is so careful, but touching, as I like the way of saying, touching his human nature, he could sleep. Touching his divine nature, he never sleeps nor slumbers. Touching his human nature, uh, he could die. Touching his divine nature, he could not die. God on the cross, uh, it was the God-man who died, but it was the humanity of Jesus that died. It was not the divinity of Jesus that died on the cross. Uh, the, the divinity of touching his divinity, he doesn't sweat, he doesn't bleed. Touching his humanity, he can bleed and sweat, uh, and on it goes. He cannot hunger in it, touching his divinity, but touching his humanity, he was hungry and wearied next to a well as the woman of the well approaches him, and on and on and on it goes. So we have to hold on to this mystery, but uh, we would not say that touching his divine nature, he was tempted. We would say touching his humanity, he experienced temptation. God is, is not tempted by evil, but in, in touching his humanity, he could be tempted. So the, how that all fits together, I will never understand, uh, at least not in this lifetime. But we must be able to affirm these basic truths that, that Scripture is teaching. And hold fast to Scripture what, even when we don't, can't explain it. Yes. Yeah, and that's, that seems important. The deity of Christ. Um, and, and let's spend the rest of our time there. Why is that important? We've talked a little bit about why the humanity of Christ is important. Why is the deity of Christ important? He is our new Adam. He did not sin. We sinned. So he died on the cross for our sins. He was the propitiation for our sins. He was our... He, exchanged his righteousness for our sin and gave us that righteousness and took our sin in his body. Um, and only God, I would say, help me with this, guys, but I, I think only God could, could take the wrath of the, of the world or the wrath of the elect in his body. Uh, I'm not sure the, the man Jesus 
could do that theologically. But God, God being infinite can take the infinite wrath and sin and dirt and filth that we offered and die. Yeah, d- turn to the classic beginning of John's gospel, just John chapter 1, and just read a few uh, well-known verses, but they're just so clear on this point. John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, so He's distinct from God the Father, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, all things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Skip down to verse 14, and the Word who was with God and was God in eternity past, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So, if Jesus was just a man, like Fred has already been saying here, if He was just a man, uh, His death on the cross could not have accomplished what Jesus did. How in the world in six hours can you get rid of infinite wrath? A mere human being could not do that. A mere human being could not extinguish infinite wrath in a, in a single Friday afternoon. It's not possible. But Jesus, because He was both God and, God and man, when He died on the cross, uh, Jesus had the infinite value and dignity attached to His divinity. He is infinitely valuable and dignified. And so, as He dies and bears judgment, He is able to drink dry God's judgment for all those who will ever turn and trust Him in that one period of time because of who He was as both God and man. So, if He was just man, He could not absorb the judgment that we deserve. If He was just divine, He could not die for sinners. He had to be made like us, truly human, to die for humans, but He had to be truly God to absorb the judgment of God and to have righteousness that could be accounted to all of us for salvation. So, you have to have both of those together. And of course, if you lose either one, uh, you, you lose the whole thing. You, you've got to have both His, His true divinity and true humanity. Yeah. Good. Papa, anything to add? Well, that's just why it's such a marvel the way these two natures are combined in one person. And, and they work so in sync, exactly as God would desire it to be when, when, he, uh, when Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit and, and Mary. Yeah. Curiosity question here that I thought of when you were uh, talking, Mark, maybe 20 minutes ago. Do you think Satan really thought that he could get Jesus to sin when he tempted him those three times? Do you think he really... did? did he, Is there an arrogance there in him that believes that he could really get Jesus to maybe do it? Yeah, I don't. I don't know. I don't. I don't know. It seems like he is trying in a way that thinks it's. It seems like he could maybe be successful in his own thinking. Uh, Otherwise, why would he do it at all? Right. It it seems like he's thinking this is his chance to try uh, and see what happens. But uh, Papa, I don't know what he thought. Well, you know, he in the Old Testament we know he was parading around in heaven in front in front of God as far as Job is concerned, uh, you know, I don't know what his access is today, but obviously he, he had access to Jesus in the wilderness when he tempted him. And I can't imagine going without food for 40 days. I, can, I can't even handle it one 40 day, minutes. Let, <laughs> yeah. let alone 40 days. And, and yet he did not sin and did not turn the loaves into bread, which Satan offered him as an out. 